Praise and obedience. I was convicted by the verse in Psalm 50, which states, The one who offers thanksgiving as a sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. <laughs> you see, I've taken pride in praying scripture over people, both near and far, on our daily basis. Although I was right in praying for them, I was ever so wrong in taking any pride in it. After all, that's what we're commanded to do, pray without ceasing. We are also commanded to pray with a thankful heart, something that in my times of grumbling I have failed to do. That's why I was touched by this verse. Give thanks sacrificially, even when you don't feel like it, even when you have a list of complaints, even when you think life is unfair, even when you're in the wilderness. Offer thanksgiving. I've spoken of thanksgiving before, yet I thought if I needed the reminder, perhaps you, dear listener, did as well, especially as things look gloomier and gloomier. Petrol prices soar, crime escalates, corruption terrifies, and inflation strangles. Still, God says, give thanks. The notion of sacrifice suggests giving something that costs you. How, you may ask, can thanksgiving cost me anything as it's just words of praise? That may be so, but if your prayer has not yet been answered or your circumstances not yet changed, then to thank God for where you are at now and to express appreciation for what you have right at this moment, before or even if you will receive what you have prayed for, is a sacrifice. Although the writer of Psalm 107 speaks of offering a th sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, it's clear that the Lord has already answered his cry for help, for he has sent out his word and healed them, snatching them from the door of death, it says. Similarly, Psalm 116 also speaks of offering a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, yet it's still clear in the earlier verses that God has already saved the psalmist from those who were seeking his death. Thus, he was in fact offering thanks for all the Lord had already done for him. Similarly, when the prophet Hosea speaks of offering praise to God, it is for what he has done for us by giving his thank forgiveness and receiving us to himself. Once again, it's as a consequence of answer prayer, not in gratefulness for our current circumstances or even in the hope that our situation will be transformed. Nor is our sacrifice of thanksgiving meant to be spoken in a vain attempt for God to provide his help. Although David nobly determines that he will not offer burnt offering to the Lord that cost him nothing, he is nonetheless purchasing the threshing floor in order to build an altar to the Lord to stop the plague that is killing his people. However, when the writer of Hebrews mentions offering through Jesus a continuous sacrifice of praise to God, there is no obvious indication that the writer's petitions have already been answered. In fact, the previous verses remind us of the suffering Jesus endured to pay for our sins. It even advises that we are to go out to him outside the camp 
and bear the disgrace he bore, reminding us that this world is not our permanent home. We are looking forward to a home yet to come, suggesting that the difficulties and challenges that we face in this world will be what a whisper of the glory to still come. Thus, God is looking for hearts that are thankful even in the valley of the shadow of death, because we are certain of God's presence even in the darkest moments. David understood this better than anyone. In Psalm 13, he moans, O Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul? with sorrow in my heart every day. How long will my enemy have the upper hand? But despite his anguish, still he says, I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. I will sing to the Lord because he is good to me. David resolutely declares his faith in God's loving kindness and recounts the times he has already rescued him from disaster. He recognizes the goodness of God as confidently as he does in Psalm 23, where he closes with, Surely, goodness and unfailing love or mercy will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. Paul and Silas can attest to this. One of the best remembered instances in scripture of the sacrifice of praise occurs when Paul and Silas are imprisoned in Philippi. Having freed an enslaved young fortune teller, Paul and Silas find their act of mercy earns them a severe beating and their feet clamped in stocks in the inner dungeon. Undeterred by the cruel treatment or their desperate situation at midnight, Paul and Silas raise their voice in prayer and hymns of praise. Their situation definitely warranted frantic petitions for help. Bodies broken and bleeding, feet encased in rough wooden stocks, imprisoned in darkness, devoid of food, water, or any hope of release. But still they praise God. Let me say it again, but still, they praised God. That is what a sacrifice of praise looks like. No way out, a situation so bleak that there doesn't seem to be any way of escape but God. That is where the sacrifice of praise begins. And then he comes, not quietly in the whisper that he appeared to Elijah, or in the silent presence in the fiery furnace, or the determined angel guiding Peter out of prison. This was a massive earthquake, shaking the prison doors to its foundation, throwing all the doors open and flinging all the chains to the ground. This was God roaring in thunder, as Job discovers. Then comes the roaring of the thunder, the tremendous voice of his majesty. He does not restrain it when he speaks. God's voice is glorious in the thunder. We can't even imagine the greatness of his power, says Job. Such is the powerful nature of his deliverance. But until we experience it, we are to praise his name for his greatness. Jonah understood this, even as he kneeled in the smelly confines of the great fish's belly. Surrounded by seaweed and the putrid remains of aquatic life, Jonah cried, but I will offer sacrifices to you with songs of praise, and I will fulfill all my vows, for my salvation comes from the Lord alone. 
even in such a terrifying situation, one in which no human rescue would ever be possible, Jonah, a reluctant missionary, offered praises to God. He is able to do it, says Jonah. And then we have the magnificent song from Hillsong, So Will I. If the stars were made to worship, so will I. If the mountains bow in reverence, so will I. If the mountains roar your greatness, so will I. For if everything exists to lift you high, so will I. What follows Jonah's declaration? Deliverance. Then the Lord ordered the fish to spit Jonah out onto the beach. The miraculous intervention experience does not always assume that we will see such an instantaneous deliverance as God isn't at our beck and call. We are to obey him. And that leads us to the second part of our sacrificial worship. We are ordered uh, to follow the Lord, to set our feet on the right path in order to see the salvation of God. We are determined, not in mock piety or false humility, that we will serve the Lord with resolute commitment, regardless of God's visible response to our needs or our requests. The prophet Samuel proclaims this to the foolishly disobedient Saul. What is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, he cries, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than the offering of the fat of rams. For obedience is a sign of sacrifice, as Jesus illustrates. Paul explains, Jesus humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. A truth echoed in Hebrews 5. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. Let us therefore worship our Lord and Savior with such open-hearted exuberance and proclaim his name.